Good afternoon. It's a hot one. Did I just a few weeks ago talk about I wish we had a hot day so everybody could be fanning themselves like old school churches in the South? Sorry about that. The Lord has heard our prayer. But we are, uh, we are again in John's Gospel tonight, or today, this evening, and... Um, So here's the deal. We're going to talk about a passage today, the woman caught in adultery. And maybe some of you are already already wise to the issues involved with this. But before we start talking about the passage, we need to talk about the passage. So let me start start with that before we even read it. I want to give just a little bit of background. There is, in the Muslim, in in Islam... There is a, a belief that the Quran, the Holy Quran, was essentially just dropped out of heaven to mankind and that, the, 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 that it was received in its pure and perfect and pristine state and has never been corrupted. There's never been any textual issues. The Quran that we have today is exactly the Quran that was given, that was downloaded by God, or by, by God to Muhammad. And um, it's an important tenet of the of of the faith of Islam, and in, um, the problem with that is Qurans are respected in such a way that if they become soiled or broken or damaged in any way, they're retired, and usually retired in a way that they're unrecoverable. So there's just not a textual history. We just don't have a whole lot of copies of old Qurans to prove that one way or the other. But in 1972, uh, in the Grand Mosque of Sa'ana in Yemen, in between the two levels of roof, in between the lower roof and the higher roof, the, the, basically the attic of the mosque, they found a Quran graveyard, which in it contained up to a thousand manuscripts of the Quran dating all the way back to the 7th and 8th centuries, to the very first centuries of Islam. And in those, in those texts, there were, there were significant variants and a textual history of the Quran showed up, that there were differences and variations. And in Islam, this is very much still under wraps, even though it was really only brought out in 1979. Um, but it is still a very a crisis for uh, Orthodox Muslims. It's just not spoken of. Um, and they're still trying to really figure out a way to deal with it. That's not so in the Christian faith. In the Bible, with the Bible, we know because we have so many manuscripts, we know that there's a textual history to the Bible. We know that there's been variants in the Bible that... You know, for, until 1500s, right, the printing press wasn't invented. People were hand-copying these things, and so there was variations, and sometimes things were in different order. For us, that's no big deal, because the very fact that we possess over almost 6,000 just Greek manuscripts of the Bible and partial and uh, fragments as well, the, the, very, the vastness of those manuscripts allows us to engage in a science called textual criticism, which helps us to reconstruct those, those, all that manuscript evidence, the wealth of those manuscripts, are the primary evidence with which we can then construct what, we, uh, what the original has said. So that mo- all, almost any reputable scholar will tell you that what we have, in, what you have in your Bible, although it's not the original autograph, it is 99.5% what the apostles and what the writers wrote, either in the text itself or in the apparatus at the bottom of the page when there's different variations. 
So all that to say, there is a couple of big variations in the Bible, or a couple of big sections that scholars question as to whether or not this is an original piece of the Bible or not. And the woman caught in adultery is one of those pieces. If you look, if you have your Bible open, you'll see there's this very special marking surrounding. There's probably two double indentations that are surround, two double parentheses, the square ones, surrounding this section from 753 down to 811, and then a notation at the bottom of the page that'll say something like, the earliest manuscripts don't contain this story. And so... Uh, there's a war, there's a scholarly cons- war back and forth. What is this? Is it a part of John's gospel? Is it a part of another gospel that found its way into John later? Is it not a part of the gospel at all? And scholars are across the board on it. And there's evidence on both sides of the fence. For example, it's not included in the earliest manuscripts that we have up to the 4th century. It's just not there until older copies of the Bible at the 5th century. But that's not as big a deal as it sounds because we only have four manuscripts from the 4th century and earlier. There are obviously many more than that. Did they have it? Did they not? We don't know. We also know that there's different vocabulary and style that's not similar to the rest of John's gospel. But there are also some similar things. There are also some similar variants in John chapter 6, and no one doubts that. Um... It does seem more like Luke. The language in it seems a lot more like Luke. That's just true. And also it seems to be somewhat of a clunky insertion here in the story of, uh, of the Jesus at the, at the Festival of Tabernacles. If you look at it, if you pull this story out and you read straight through from 752 to 812, the story flows pretty well. Although there are some problems with that too, with audience. Who's he speaking to? It doesn't quite make sense if you assume the same audience from chapter 7 at chapter 8, 12. On the other side, in favor of it, there's very early mention of this story by one of the church fathers, Papias, who was first century, second century, as part of the gospel to the Hebrews, which may be the original format or the original form of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's astonishingly like the gospel narratives and like the stories that we have about Jesus, but it is very unlike what the early church would have written about Jesus after the fact. They had very strict penitential rites. And this story would have been scandalous. And as a matter of fact, Augustine, the great Saint Augustine in the fourth century, he says, point blank, and Augustine knows more about the early church and the early church Bibles than we will ever know. He says that the story was purposely taken out by leaders who are afraid that it might give license to their wives to go out and commit adultery. So, here's the, here's the preacher's dilemma. You know, in the academy, they can argue about this stuff in the abstract, but when it comes down to me or any other preacher, it's like, what do we do? Do you risk, on the one hand, that this is an authentic gospel story and, and, and not preach it? Or do I risk that it might not be authentic and preach it anyways, thus binding all your consciences to its word. And so this is one of those places where you just have to come, it comes down to you just have to make the call. And in my mind, I think, based on the, the evidence that's much more likely to be an authentic story, it doesn't contradict anything about the word of God. It doesn't contradict anything that we know about Jesus. It has a lot of similarities to the story of the paralytic that's earlier in John. 
There's evidence, there's good arguments for why it's placed where it is. Is it from John? I don't know. That's, that's a harder question to answer. And so I'm, we're going to preach it. I'm going to preach it because my conscience is bound to the fact that I think this is a legitimate and authentic story about Jesus. Is it part of John? That question, I don't know. Is it part of Luke that got excised or part of Matthew that got excised by a very legalistic early church? I don't know. What I do know, what I do think, the bottom of my heart, as best as I can guess, is that this is an authentic story about Jesus. And it is a beautiful, astonishingly beautiful picture of grace. So, here we go. At the end of the day, the little textual variants in the Bible don't assault our faith because we have so many manuscripts and so much evidence and we're so sure of the actual, what the actual text is with very few exceptions, and those exceptions do not affect Christian doctrine in one way or the other. So, having said that, I, feel, I felt like I should give you uh, at least a, a little bit of a textual history behind it and the reason why we're going to go ahead and study it today, and I hope it'll be as profitable to you as it has been to me this week studying through it. So, here we are. By way of review, last time we talked about Jesus in the temple at Tabernacles, Uh, The chief priests and the Pharisees had sent officers to arrest him, and they wouldn't do it because of the way he spoke. And so now the officers are looking for evidence against him. Uh, He was, and the Nicodemus had said at the end of their conversation that do we judge a man, by does our law judge a man without seeing what he does? In other words, without seeing whether or not he's in compliance with the law. And so there's a law test that's coming to Jesus. And thirdly, Jesus has spoken about and to them and encourage them to judge not by appearances but by right judgment. And now he's going to give us an example of what that is. So could I please ask you to stand one last time as we read Gospel of John chapter 8. They went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? But they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the beauty it is to us. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
So because of the long intro to the intro, we're going to get right into it. Here's the thesis statement. Here's the big idea of this passage. The one thing that John wants us to know more than anything else, and that is this. That the unyielding nature of the law can only condemn, but the grace of God elicits the devotion of love. The unyielding nature of the law can only condemn, but the grace of God elicits the devotion of love. We'll work through that one phrase at a time. First, the unyielding nature of the law. I think one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen, even though it was just on video, and I've seen a lot of disturbing things, um, was a, st- a video of, as a video, um, I think it was Taliban, it was a Taliban video of the stoning of a woman who had been caught in adultery. It was real live happening, what was happening here. And what was so disturbing about it was that the woman, her father was there, and the woman was begging forgiveness from her father and begging her father to stand in for her and to to witness for her against the men that were going to stone her and he refused because in his world, in his faith, uh, there was no mercy. There was just strict and pure law and that's what had to be carried out. And the heartbreaking thing about it was the, the ringleader leaned down to the woman and he said, daughter, this is God's will. Submit to God's will. And you could see at that point her shoulders dropped. She had a full burqa on, so you couldn't see her face. But her spirit broke. In that awful situation, they couldn't offer forgiveness because Islam is pure law. There's not an opportunity. There's nothing that mitigates that. The unyielding nature of the law demands exact justice, and it cannot offer forgiveness. And this is true of all religious systems other than Christianity. If you look at anything from Islam to Hinduism, the same is true with karma. Karma is unyielding, pure law. There's no mercy in it. There's no grace in it. You are either being condemned and killed by your previous sins and over the course of lifetimes, or you are working and earning off your karma. You're working for good. It is a perfect and exact exchange of goodness for justice, or goodness and justice. There's no mercy in it. There's no, there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. It is just exact divine retribution, except in that system, you must suffer a million deaths before you can even hope to, at some point in the future, have worked off all your karma, which is problematic because really the first shot is your best shot. After that, you're already stained with sin. Your first shot, you come in pure at least, and then you're stained with karma, and it's a downhill battle from then. And each lifetime you come in with a state of amnesia, not even knowing what it is you need to work off. So it's really a brutal, brutal, brutal system. It is a brutal law-based system in the same way that that Islamic stoning was. But the same was true with Israel too, although there were certain aspects of the law that lent it to be a picture of divine retribution in the law. There was... Uh, there were certain elements of that civil law code that were mitigated in some ways by grace. For example, there's a story of Achan in, uh, in, the, story of jo- uh, in the story of Joshua when, when Joshua is running, uh, the, the Israel's coming into the, the land of Canaan. A man named Achan takes some of the spoils of war against the wishes of God and st- takes them for himself because they're beautiful and there's gold and silver and he buries it in his tent 
uh, and they find out, they draw lots, they find out who it was that has done this, that's brought sin against Israel and brought sin into the camp. And Joshua comes to the man and he, says, and he offers him a chance to, to confess and offers forgiveness. And they do exact the punishment, but it's because of the forgiveness and the grace involved, it becomes just a, a picture, his physical death becomes the picture of the divine justice but he himself is not necessarily spiritually dying or under the penalty of spiritual death. It's a picture, that physical death is a picture of what divine retribution must be without grace. And so they take him and he's executed in the valley, what they call the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Interesting play on words in the Bible. The man's name is Achan and he's killed in the Valley of Achor. His name is Trouble and he dies in the Valley of Trouble. But the picture not necessarily spiritual death. The picture, uh, it, the picture is, this picture is of the spiritual reality. In later Israel, we know there's much more forgiveness that's been offered. There's very little record of women being stoned for adultery in later Israel, and there's, there's much evidence of husbands being allowed to extend grace by just seeking for divorce from their wives in the same way that someone might, might do today or have the right to do today. And also there was a customary issue to issue warnings to people before punishment. But nonetheless, the picture is still very clear and it's a picture that transcends into and, tr- and comes into the New Testament at well. What does Romans 6.23 say? That the wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this is true for everyone, no matter where we are, wherever you are in time, no matter what you do, whether you die because you're stoned to death by an angry mob, we die in a fiery auto accident, you die from cancer, heart attack, whatever. The ultimate reason why we suffer physical death is because that is the punishment that God has decreed for our sinfulness and for our rebellion against him. Our physical death, the separation from our bodies then becomes a picture of the ultimate penalty of the greater death that awaits those outside of Christ, the separation of ourselves from God. So, summing all that up, the law, it cannot yield, it cannot offer mercy, it can only demand exact retributive justice, just like an angry mob. And so here stands the unfaithful daughter of Israel, caught in her idolatry, in her adultery, caught by the law with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. So here's the question that comes from that. If the law can only demand justice and we are all sinners, what does this mean? What is the purpose? What can be the purpose of the law? The second point, the unyielding nature of the law can only condemn. Point two, the law was meant to condemn. You know, the biggest religious mistake of all time is the idea that the law is what God has given us to earn life. It's what Islam is based on. It's what Hinduism is based on. It's what every other religious system in the world other than Christianity is based on. There's a system of law that you must achieve or do or accomplish and then that will earn you the approbation of God or that will earn you the love of God and, and enter in, earn you entrance into heaven or nirvana or wherever it may be that you're going or you hope to go. 
And that's prevalent even in Christianity, astonishingly. But let's look at, I want to look at just a couple of key New Testament texts first that, that define what the purpose of the law is. And these are, these are New Testament texts. So remember, this is the official apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament. How do we properly interpret the Old Testament? We interpret it the way the apostles interpret it, who are taught by Jesus how to interpret it, not how we may think or feel or reason based on our circumstances. Whatever the apostles do, however they interpret it, that's the right way. So look at, I'm going to just briefly go through these. If you have your Bibles, you can look at Galatians chapter 3.19. Paul actually, he goes through a section explaining how it is that no one is being able to, no one can be saved by the law because no one is able to perfectly do it. And then he says, why then the law? There it is. He's going to tell us right now. There's no guesswork. And what he says is this. Summarize, he said the law, he says, was added because of transgressions, not to stop transgressions. He says it means in context the law was given to point out transgressions, to show us how many sins and transgressions, how, we, how sinful we truly are. And he goes on to say the law is like a harsh taskmaster, which is a, uh, in those times was a person that was hired by the father to raise underage children. They were harsh consistently beating them, pointing out their sins, just awfully pointing out how awful they were. And then, then Paul says, and this was our prison, we were in prison during this until the time when grace came, when Jesus came and freed us from under that prison, that harsh taskmaster of the law. Romans 7, he said, Paul says close to the same thing. He says, had it not been for the law, I would not even know what sin was. And then he uses covetousness as an example because covetousness is something you do in the heart, right? You can covet all day long and nobody else knows you're doing it. So it's a great example. But he says, if it weren't for the law, the law showed me what covetousness was, that it was a sin, that I was plagued with it. And then he says, in addition to that, that the knowledge of the law actually produced in him all kinds of coveting. The law in other words, aggravated his sinful heart in such a way that in rebellion he coveted all the more. And he says it straight out in Romans chapter 5. He says, now the law came to increase trespass. Man, if you just read that, just running through Romans 5 and you run across that line, it's, it's so counterintuitive. You're like, well, that can't mean what it means. It can't mean the law was given to increase our trespass, but that is exactly what it means. God gave the law to show us our sinfulness, to show that sin is exceedingly sinful, as Paul says elsewhere, but actually to aggravate our sinful nature and increase sin in such a way that we would cry out, oh God, who would save me from this body of death. That's the purpose of the law. That's why God gave the law, not as a stepping stone to heaven or as a way to earn life, but as a way to show us that we are spiritually dead, dead, dead. So back to the story. The adulterous daughter of Israel before the angry mob of the law, and they brought her to Jesus not in sincerity, but as a trap. They were trying to catch him in a false dichotomy between law and grace. They think the two are diametrically opposed, and they're, so they're coming to Jesus saying, what are you going to do? 
what are you going to do? Are you going to go by the letter? Are you going to say, no, we shouldn't stone her, and though that therefore show yourself as a breaker of the law? And therefore, now we have some evidence to bring to the officers so that next time we tell the cops to come and arrest you, we'll have something against you? Or are you going to say, no, stone her, and therefore blow your reputation with all the people that have been following you? The people have come to him because they're astonished by his grace and his mercy and his teaching. And if he says, stone this woman, that's going to turn everyone against him. So they think they've got him. It's pretty smart, actually, when you think about it, but not quite smart enough. Let's read chapter uh, 7 again, 6 through 7. And so Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So the big question is, of course, the big question in all the commentaries everybody wants to answer is, what did he write? Is that what you want to know? know? Uh, What did he write? Well, the bummer is it doesn't tell us. It just doesn't say what he wrote. And so there's all kind of speculation and guesses across the board some better than others. The best one, the most fantastic one, of course, is that um, what he was doing was he was writing the names of the scribes and the Pharisees along with their personal laws that they had broken, just straight out like an ancient Ashley Madison hack. The best one, the most likely one, is that, that he wrote Exodus 23, which says this. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And the guy, the theologian that supports that theory or presents that, that theory, and that's all we can say it is, but he, there's a lot of, uh, there's, it's a lot of, it's very interesting because there's all kind of obvious shenanigans going on here. Have you noticed that it said they caught the woman in the act of adultery? That all the law that they're talking about where she deserves to be stoned talks about both parties having been caught in adultery are, are to be punished. So where's the guy? How did the guy get away? The rules for witnesses were, such, were, so, were just as strict. There had to be at least two or three witnesses that caught this woman in the act of adultery. It's very unlikely that the guy had gotten away. And it's much more likely that there was some sort of setup going on here, some sort of set up on her to catch him or one of their cronies. Honestly, we don't know. It's an interesting guess. But what we do know is that they are not properly handling the law either. And as they come to him with another law test and they are condemning this woman who is so obviously sinful, Jesus is about to once again turn the tables on him and he does that. Whatever he does while riding in the sand does that. Here's the most amazing verse that relates to this. It's Exodus 31, 18. It says, talking about on Mount Sinai, when Moses received the tablets of the law, it says this, and he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So we don't know what he wrote. But what we do know is that the finger that wrote in the dirt was the very same finger that wrote the law 
on the Ten Commandments given to Moses. And as such, the effect of him writing that law, or writing whatever it was that he wrote on that ground, caused those men, the scribes and the Pharisees, for the proper effect of the law to hit them square in the face. The purpose of the law, one after another, from the oldest to the youngest, they all came to realize that they too were just as guilty as that woman that they had brought forward. That they were, none of them were any better than she was. It's astonishing. And they all left. And they left her alone. You know, the question that we get from that is, is that our attitude? Is that our attitude when we see people in sin or when people sin against us? Are we quick to condemn the faults that we see in other people and expect others not to do that with us or to forget that we are all equally guilty under the law? I had a a good buddy of mine a while ago, a guy named Will. He was part of an Anglican church and we were out one night in PB after a, a get-together, and we were talking to a guy. I didn't know him real well, but I, I knew him pretty well. as a gay man, and we were talking about Christianity, and he was sharing with me his life, and he told me, he said, his mom, he said, my mom, my mom, all she would ever say to me is that you're going to hell, you're going to hell, and Will, in the best line of all time, do you remember this? He leans in, and he goes, your mom's in charge of sending people to hell? And I was like, brilliant. You see, we're not supposed to be an angry mob. Grace is not supposed to be an angry mob. It's not supposed to be a condemning finger. We're supposed to come into situations like that and in grace and in humility and in love give real warnings, but at the same time put our self in the boat, in the same boat with everyone else and say, this is what God has done for us. This is what Jesus has done for me and to pronounce and to proclaim the grace that God has given us. You know, there's, when there's an accident, there's two, people that, two kinds of people that show up. There's the police. God bless them. We, they show up and their, their job is to figure out who's at fault or who's broken the law and to enact the law. The second group of people that come are the paramedics. And they're not really concerned about whose fault it is or who did what. Their job is to come in and patch up the wounded and nurse people back to health. And that's who we need to be. We need the law. There's a definite place for it, and it's good. The law is good. (laughs) We hate it because we're not. But we as Christians, the church is not supposed to be an angry mob. The church is supposed to be the paramedics who come and patch people up. And so the law is the great equalizer. It puts all of us on the same footing. It puts all of us on the same stage. When it does its job properly, it comes to us and says, you you too are condemned under this law. You too are are guilty. You, not, you are not worthy on your own of God's love and everything that you have has been received as a gift. So therefore, when you relate to anyone else, you relate to them in humility and in patience and in love. So the law condemns. If that's true, is there any hope for us? 
the unyielding nature of the law can only condemn. But, point three, point three, the grace of God elicits the devotion of love. And so here we are, scene two. All the scribes and Pharisees have drifted off into the street and the unfaithful, adulterous daughter of Israel, having been manhandled and exposed by the angry mob of unyielding law, sits. The law had done its work. It had convicted her. It had condemned her. And now she was left at the feet of Jesus. St. Augustine, his, again, his commentary on this, he's this beautiful line. I wish I could say it in Latin. Maybe we'll ask Dr. Telford to say it in Latin for us later. But it says, and only the two were left, misery and mercy. What's he going to do? Can you imagine that's got to be running through her mind, right? All the Pharisees and all the scribes have left. But now here she is at the feet of this famous prophet at the very least. She's got to know who he is. I mean... What was she thinking? What was she feeling? Can you imagine what you would be thinking and feeling in that moment as the adrenaline is shaking your body, that post-trauma state of mind, the fear is just rambling. You just realize what just almost happened to you, but you don't really know what's going to happen next at the foot of this man. Have you ever been publicly exposed for your sin in front of people that you respected? Has that ever happened? It's awful. Awful, awful. There's nothing. It's terrible. I mean, there's the remorse of it, right? I mean, she's got to be running. If it was a trap or if she was tricked or even if she was caught, she's got to be running back in her mind. If I don't, you know, that when, you, when something happens like that and you just start thinking, oh, if only I'd have did this instead of that or if only I'd gone here instead of there. That torturous state of mind where you're trying, you just so desperately wish you could go back in time and make a different decision, but you can't. And then there's the shame of it, which might be the worst part. Sometimes the worst part is coming to realize that what you are really capable of, amen? When the thin veneer of your charade of holiness comes crashing down and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, oh, dear God, save me. I really, really am a sinner. And it's just that awful feeling of pressure because you're trapped and you can't run away and hide because the person you need to run and hide from is yourself. And so you have to sit there in the shame and the remorse and the guilt and the awfulness of it, and just hope that time may take care of it. And so she's sitting there in front of Jesus, feeling it. But listen to how beautiful Jesus is. He could have, she could have expected any, who knows what was she was expecting to come out of his mouth as she looked up at him, but he speaks to her first. He addresses her first. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Do you see that your condition is no worse than anyone else's? 
Do you see that I've come to rescue you because of your sin, not in spite of it? Do we get that? Do we get that? How many times when we fall into a sin like that do we flinch at the presence of God? Do we run away? Are we afraid to pray? Afraid to ask forgiveness? Afraid to confess because we think that God is angry at us? But he's come to save us because of our sins, not in spite of them. And then as the fear begins to subside inside her mind and the faint light of salvation begins to rise in her heart, the king and the judge of the universe speaks to her and he speaks the amazing scandal of grace. He speaks what was unthinkable to the early church. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. It's beautiful. But last big question is, how is it possible? What is it that makes Jesus different from Allah? Why is it that Jesus is able to forgive? Why is it that he's not working with just pure, unyielding, law? Why is he different? Why is the Lord Jesus Christ different from the Lord Krishna? Why is he able to mitigate justice with mercy and grace? And the answer is simply because he trades places with the woman. We get a little picture of it just down the road at the end of John's gospel when some of these same guys come back and they get another altercation with Jesus and now they pick up stones to stone Jesus. They're going to, he's now in the place of that woman that he rescued and they are absolutely dead set on killing him and stoning him to death right there where he stands. But he gets away because it's not yet his time. But that serves as a smaller picture of a little bit down the road in John 19 where he actually does change places and trade places with the woman on the cross when he cries out, it is finished. It is finished and his work of trading places with the adulterous daughter of Israel is finally complete. And this is something that was foretold thousands of years prior to that. Israel in the Old Testament, it was considered or portrayed as a faithless bride, as an adulterous woman. Idolatry is pictured uh, by this image of adultery of leaving the God that loves you to go and to serve lesser gods. The prophet Hosea, the great Hispanic prophet Hosea, he was given the task of uh, marrying a prostitute as a picture of God's unfailing love for Israel. And this is what God says about that, talking about unfaithful, adulterous Israel and what he plans to do for her. And he says this in Hosea, Therefore, Behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Accor the place of judgment of Achan. I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope, and there 
She shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your, her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Friends, brothers and sisters, we are the adulterous daughter of Israel. We are God's people that have forsaken him, that have sinned against him in rebellion. And his response to that is not unyielding law. His response to us is not condemnation. His response to us is that he has taken the punishment of our sins himself so that he may betroth us to him so that we might be with him together in heaven forever. He has allured us to himself. He has betrothed us to himself in righteousness by providing us the righteousness that we did not have and that we did not deserve in his son. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice the order. That's important. First, I do not condemn you. Second, go and sin no more. Even Roman Catholic theologians admit that that phrase is a, is a phrase in John's gospel. He also used it, the paralytic, which means to believe in Jesus and to forsake the sin of unbelief. In the next, very next chapter, Jesus says, you will die in your sin because you do not believe in me. And so Jesus says, there's a component to it, though, where after we understand who Jesus is, after he has done what he has done for us, after we are awestruck at his beauty and love for us in the gospel, that that then, the love that we have for him, then is capable of eliciting from us the devotion of love, the gratitude with which we then strive to achieve the law, not out of fear, not out of condemnation, but because we realize who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's what theologians call the third use of the law, our guide to holiness as an act of worship to the God who has saved us. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and the beauty it is to us. You are an amazing and beautiful God. Lord, the default setting of our hearts is self-righteousness. We want to earn our place before you and what we want is to show you and the world that we are good enough and that we should be able to determine right and wrong for ourselves and that you should accept us based on our own goodness, even though that's insane and we know it's not true. And so, Passages like this do offend us. They offend the natural heart. They offend us that you 
that we are in so need of your grace. But Lord, you have given us your spirit and you have given us supernatural knowledge into your word and so we stand in awe, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you that you have saved us. We thank you, Lord, that you have not condemned us but that you have taken our just condemnation upon yourself. So, Lord, having been freed from the yoke of the law as a way to life, we now, with one accord and joyful hearts, Lord, we pray that you would empower us to strive after holiness for your great name's sake because of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, and help us to be lights in the world. We love you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.